Well, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4 tonight as we continue our series on biblical priorities for young families. And, uh, you know, as, you, as I saw and you probably did as well on the news, there's been a number of record-setting wildfires out west uh, this year, many of which destroyed uh, just countless homes and uh, even entire uh, towns. And, you know, if, if you were in one of those situations where you were given the order to evacuate and maybe told, you know, you have five minutes to uh, grab whatever you can from your home and you need to be on the road getting out of here because the fire's coming and it's likely to destroy it, um, what would you take with you? <laughs> What would be the, uh, the few things that you might quickly grab to, uh, to take knowing that everything else would be left behind, destroyed? You know, what you would choose in that moment, and uh, it may be just something that's close by, it may be something real intentional, but what you would choose shows something of what you value, doesn't it? You know, what uh, is important to you, what you uh, prioritize in that moment, and you know, really, when we think of our time, what we choose to spend the limited time that we have also shows what is important to us. It's not always as calculated as that. It's not always thinking intentionally, okay, I can only do a few things. What are those things that are most important that I'm going to do? Life is often screaming louder at us where we don't think that carefully, but it shows what our our values are, what is important to us. And we've seen already that the direction of our life, what ultimately our chief priorities and values should be, is our love for God first and our love for others second. That's what our lives are to be about, loving him above all else and loving our neighbor as ourselves. We should value God above everything and and value others as we do ourselves, which impacts then the details of our life, how we spend moment by moment, day by day. And, And we saw the need for priorities to identify what are those things that we ought to be doing that God either commands us to do or designed us to do, the the things that come with the particular roles that he has given us, those priorities shaping what we do as opposed to just the things that, again, are screaming the loudest for us. Also, that desire to make the most of our time not only affects what we do, we saw last time that it affects how we do it. It it drives us to want to, to do things with excellence, to be faithful stewards working unto the Lord, doing the best we can for his glory with the time and resources available to us. All the while never thinking that our efforts are the basis for our standing before God. And and so tonight we want to consider, uh, begin considering some of the specific priorities that God has given us. And this is what we're going to focus on uh, from this point forward is, is more of what are those specific things that God says really matter for us that we ought to be prioritizing. Now we can't cover everything. There are more important things than what we will hit on, but we want to cover those things that are most important, the things that we have to say no matter what, these things are going to be what we fill our time with. We must prioritize. We must fit these into our lives. And we begin tonight with the priority of personal godliness. 
know, when we think of godliness, obviously that comes from the, the or has a, a root word of God. And so it's related to how we think of and respond to God. And, and John MacArthur put, said this of it. He said, godliness is the heart and soul of Christian character and the aim of Christian living. Another author said, for the glory of God, the good of others, and the satisfaction of our souls, the aim of the Christian life is coming to share in such Christ-likeness or godliness, which is holiness rightly understood. Do you believe that? That, that the goal for your life and mine as a Christian is to be sharing in Christ-likeness or godliness. That's what we are striving for. You know, when we think of godliness, I think we could, could define all that is involved in that biblical idea, something like this. It's the attitude of reverence for God that comes from knowing him and results in conduct that is consistent with his character for his glory. It's, it's a word that's used of the attitude we have towards God. In the Old Testament, it's, it's an idea... Uh, or the, the New Testament word for godliness is used in the, the Old Testament translation in Greek of, of a fear of God, a reverence for God. And, and that comes from knowing him, rightly understanding him, but it, it's more than just knowledge. It's a knowledge that produces the fruit of conduct that is like him. We could maybe simplify it to say godliness is knowing God and growing to be like him. It, it involves both right belief and the right action or response to that belief. And I've used the word personal in our title. It's personal godliness because it's a characteristic of individuals. You're not godly because you attend a good church. You're not uh, a godly couple uh, if, if you're not individually manifesting God's character. It's your attitude towards God, your increasing conformity to his character, your response to all that he is. And Paul speaks to the importance of this and to the pursuit of this in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now, 1 Timothy is written to Timothy, obviously, who was a young pastor. And so it's primarily about what it looks like to be a godly pastor and to, for the church to be what it ought to be. And and in chapter 4, he's beginning the chapter warning about some false teaching that Timothy is to be aware of and to be confronting. And in verse 6, he says, In pointing these things out to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine, which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women, these, these different uh, doctrines or different ideas that are, are not accurate, and, and he's not really being critical of old people or of women uh, as much as he's just uh, using that as a, a, a phrase of those who, uh, uh, of that day, things that, that were common uh, passing around among folks. And he says, on the other hand, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. 
Now again, these principles specifically apply to, to Timothy and to those in pastoral ministry, but the goal for Timothy or for any, any pastoral, uh, anyone in pastoral ministry is that their life is an example to others, and so what he's calling Timothy to is no different than what should be manifested in any believer. And, and we see here tonight a number of realities about godliness. I want us to start thinking about the value of attaining godliness. You know, if you've been around the church for very long, you have heard and thought about these ideas quite a bit. And, and I think sometimes they become somewhat commonplace to us that, yeah, we should be pursuing godliness. Sure, we should. But here, Paul highlights for us the value, the priority of pursuing godliness. And he does that in one way in verse 8 by contrasting that with bodily discipline or physical training. And he, he highlights the value of godliness compared to that. He says bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. Now, what is he talking about with this idea of bodily discipline? Some think that it's referring back to the false teaching that he uh, uh, was teaching about in earlier in chapter 4 when he said there are those who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created, sort of a, an asceticism that came in the false teaching, so a, a rigid self-denial in, in the name of, of religion. Uh, it's possible that that's what he means when he says that is, is not of great value, but I, I think it's more likely that he's talking just generally about physical training that was common in that day and age as it's common in ours. The the athletic pursuits that were common, but also just the, the reality that much of what it meant to live and work in that day and age involved physical labor. And so there was a priority on taking care of one's body and of of being as physically fit as was possible. He, and, you know, those are, are not as necessary today in many vocations, but they're still something that many pursue, the, uh, uh, a healthy, fit body through diet or exercise or sports. And Paul here says that is only of little profit. He doesn't say it's worthless, but he says it, it is comparatively only of little value. Why is that? Well, it's because those things only last for a certain amount of time, you know, there's a, that reality that you can do all you can to, to keep your body in shape and to keep your body healthy and active and, and athletically strong. And yet the reality is time and the fallen world that we live in always wins. I, I've, uh, I've known Jeff for a number of years and, and uh, we used to play basketball in, uh, when I was in junior high. He was a youth leader. And uh, while Jeff is a stellar basketball player today, uh, he's not what he used to be. <laughs> and that's true for all of us. You know, we, we all lose that over time, don't we? He, he says those things have some place, but they're of, of lesser value than godliness. He says godliness, on the other hand, doesn't just have little profit. He says godliness is profitable for all things. It holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. He says it's profitable, it's it's useful, it's beneficial, it it promotes one's well-being, it's valuable in every circumstance, in every time. 
Doesn't matter what you're doing or where you are or whether it is in this life or for eternity, godliness has value. You think about the things in your life and what you can say that about. That this will always be valuable. I mean, I, I, I mow my grass and what happens? Next week I have to do it again. It's like, that didn't seem like it was that valuable. You know, it's just a constant cycle of things. You know, you think of, of the physical, material things that we work so hard for and that deteriorate over time. You know, there's so many things in life that we can pursue that fall into that category of, of bodily discipline or, or the, the, the same value of that. They're only of little profit. They're not worthless, but they don't have an enduring, lasting value that godliness has. You know, sometimes when we think of, of things that are valuable, we think of their value as it relates to the ends that they give us. Godliness is not that. It's not simply a means to an end and therefore valuable. Like there's times where, where I go to Taco Bell and I order the, off the value meal and I get the, the triple layer nachos, which are a dollar, instead of the Mexican pizza, which is a lot better, uh, but costs like five bucks. And I say, this was of, of value. And what I really mean is this is junk, but it was cheap. And I can spend four bucks on something else that I'd rather do later on in a different way. And I think if we're not careful, we can think of godliness that way. We can think, well, yeah, it's valuable because it's a necessary means to an end. <laughs> Yeah, it's good. Like, it's, it's something I don't really want, and it's keeping me from other things that I kind of would like to do, but it's valuable ultimately because heaven is better than hell, and that's worth it. Or it's, it's going to be better for my family. will be happier if I'm living the way God said. And we think of it kind of as, yeah, it's good, but it's more good because of what it does. But he says this is, it is valuable in and of itself, Why is that? Why is godliness so precious and valuable, not simply as a means to an end, although it brings great benefits, but why should we delight in the pursuit of godliness? Well, think about what godliness is again. Godliness is knowing God for who he is. It is, it is responding rightly to the God of the universe saying, you are one who has revealed yourself to me. You are my treasure and I get to know you and walk with you and I get to be like you, demonstrating your character. Yes, do you understand? That's what you were made for. God designed you. He created you in his image. And he put Adam and Eve in the garden and said, you get to walk with me. You get to know me. You get to speak face to face with me. And you get to show what I am like. That is what we were made for. Now we think all the time that we were made for or would find satisfaction in all kinds of other things. And so we pursue those things that are fleeting and that do not last when really what is ultimately our good is being godly. It's a joy to know God, to to delight in him and to grow in being like him. And yet too often we view it as kind of something that, yeah, we're supposed to do and we should do this and it's good for us, but it's not a joyous treasure. 
Because the value in godliness is not primarily what you get out of it. It is in knowing God, knowing Christ, and becoming more like him. And Paul says that is precious. It is of eternal value. And it should be pursued in that way. Yes, do you value personal godliness? You know, again, I gave you the example of choosing something from your home as a way to reveal what you value. You know, if you think of yourself, if you could only choose one attribute for yourself, you know, if I said, uh, I've got a, a way that you can select from any of these categories and one thing will be true of you. You, you could be really good looking or, or you could be really athletic or physically healthy or you could be really intelligent or really wealthy and successful. You could always be happy and have circumstances like you want or be respected by others or you could be godly. <laughs> what would you choose? <laughs> you know, I think if we're honest, we say, yeah, the right answer is godly. <laughs> That's what I should choose. But we, we tend to think of all those other things as being pretty important and God says, yeah, there's, there's little profit in some of those things, and we should be faithful stewards with whatever God has given us, but our pursuit, what we treasure and long for, should primarily be godliness, knowing him and being like him. And so we have to ask ourselves, is that reality reflected in our time? Well, what does it look like for us to prioritize becoming godly. I want us to think secondly about the means of pursuing godliness. You know, it is only because of God's grace through Christ that this reality is possible for us. If you are not in Christ, you cannot become godly. Through faith in Christ, we can be set free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin and ultimately from the presence of sin in a way that God will complete his work to make us like him. But it's God's work to save us and to complete the transformation to Christ-likeness in us. But he calls us to diligently pursue that. If you, if you look briefly at Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and following, Paul hits this balance and he says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He, he says, continue to strive to, to grow, to see your salvation shaping who you are. And he says, do that, verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you. Wait a minute. <laughs> You're to work it out because it's God who's at work in you. Well, that seems like that doesn't fit together. He says, no, you work it out because God is at work in you. John Piper put it this way. He says, God's work does not make our work unnecessary. It makes it possible. You see, God is working, and so that doesn't mean we get to sit on the couch and do nothing. Woo-hoo, God's working. It's great. No, it makes it possible for us to work in a way that bears ultimate fruit in our transformation. And you guys, God has told us what the normal means are that he uses to bring about that transformation. Some of those things are outside our control. He uses circumstances and trials to shape and refine us. You can't really bring those on yourself, but some of them are things that we can control. They are a, a means of his grace to work in us. One 
Author David Mathis uses the analogy of flipping a switch to turn on a light or of turning a faucet to get water. You know, when, uh, when you uh, turn on a light or turn on a faucet, why is it that that light is on or the water is flowing? Is it because you flipped a switch or because you turned that faucet? Well, in one sense, yes, but in another sense, no. If there was not electricity flowing through the, uh, the, the cables that come to your house and through your house, and that electricity wasn't being produced somewhere else, it wouldn't matter how many times you flip that switch, that light is not coming on. If there was not water coming through the pipes that was, uh, was filtered somewhere else and, and that was coming through, it wouldn't matter if you turn that faucet on, there's nothing that would come out. Guys, in many ways, these means that God has given for us are like flipping the switch or, or turning on the faucet. They are, are necessary, but they are not what is fueling or primarily causing that to happen. He goes on and writes this. He says, so it is for the Christian with the ongoing grace of God. His grace is essential for our spiritual lives, but we don't control the supply. We can't make the favor of God flow, but he has given us circuits to connect and pipes to open expectantly. There are paths along which he has promised his favor. God is lavish in his grace. He is free to liberally dispense his goodness without even the least bit of cooperation and preparation on our part, and often does. But he also has his regular channels, and we can routinely avail ourselves to these revealed paths of blessing or neglect them to our detriment. This is why Paul could say to Timothy and to us, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. It's a word that comes from uh, the, the same uh, word from which we get gymnasium or gymnastics. It's to, to exercise, to train yourself. He says you can do spiritual exercises that God has commanded that he has said he will routinely use to produce change towards godliness in us. What are these means of grace, these spiritual exercises that God uses? There's certainly many and, uh, and uh, resources and, and helpful lists. Don Whitney's book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, is a great overview of these things. There's others as well. But tonight I want to just give you two categories of individual spiritual exercises that promote godliness. Again, they are not an end in and of themselves. You can do these things and not be godly. <laughs> You, you, can, you, you don't need to think that if I am doing these, that equals godliness. No, it's the channel through which God often works and, and says he will work to grow and to change you as you are seeking him. The first category that we could say is, is that of hearing from God or of Bible intake. You know, we don't hear from God in audible ways today. We hear from God through his word. God has revealed himself to us. If godliness is about knowing God and growing to become like him, we get to know him as he has revealed himself to us and communicated to us in his word. And so a primary way that we grow in godliness is by disciplining ourselves to prioritize hearing from God through his word in a regular, ongoing way. That can come in in a number of ways, in listening to the word, 
read or taught in 1 Timothy 4, he goes on to Timothy and, and says, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. In, in those days, not everybody had a copy of the Bible themselves. They couldn't pull it up on their phone and read it whenever they wanted to. And so the public reading of Scripture was even more important because that's the only time they got it. For us, we have so many opportunities to listen to the Word, to hear it read, to hear it taught uh, in church context, but even beyond in so many different ways. You know, sitting in a room or a car where this is happening doesn't mean we're hearing it or listening. It, it means we have the opportunity to do that. But we need to be active listeners. Don't take notes while you drive if you're listening to a, a sermon. But at other times, be proactive to, to process and, and, and to pay attention and to grow. We need to read the word, be reading the word. Jesus often said, have you not read to people? His assumption was, you've read it. Now often he was talking to the religious leaders, but he assumed people knew what the Bible said. You know, it's, it's estimated that it takes 70 hours and about 40 minutes to read the Bible at pulpit rate. I don't know whose pulpit rate that is, if that's like a southern preacher or a northern preacher or what. But it's, the, the point is, it's not as long as you would think. Now, 70 hours is a long time, um, but the average American watches that much TV in less than a month. So if you think of that, it's not too much to ask that we spend time reading God's word and that we could actually read a fair amount of it. Now that doesn't mean you have to have the goal of reading as much of it as you can, as fast as you can. There are different uh, needs and different desires and different plans that can be useful for you. But do you make a regular pattern of spending time reading God's word to see the big picture? Uh, again, it doesn't have to be a... a uh, uh, a strict plan that everybody does that's exactly the same, but a regular pattern of getting into God's word. If you have not done that, I encourage you to, to start. Talk to your small group or others about what they do and, and come up with a plan. Maybe start a plan for January 1 of 2019, but start now and get ahead, and that way you won't get discouraged if you fall behind. We need to be reading God's word. We need to be studying. That's digging deeper, not just... Um, not just reading it at a surface level. One author compares reading at a surface level to like raking your yard and studying to digging down, finding the jewels that are underneath your yard. Uh, we, we need to slow down and, and spend time looking at particular verses, slowly reading a book repeatedly or a section, meditating on small chunks, using other resources. Again, doesn't mean that it has to be, uh, uh, has to look the same for every person. We're all at different stages of what that might look like, but intentionally trying to discern the, the jewels of truth that are there. Maybe through participation in a women's Bible study or teaching a children's Sunday school class, or maybe just on your own, choosing topics or books that you want to work through. Those are things that can be done in a period of time, but the scriptures emphasize uh, alongside those things, meditating on God's word, thinking about it over and over. And really, this is the key to change. You can read something or hear something or even study something, as I can, and walk away, and an hour later, somebody can say, hey, what'd you read this morning? You're like, the Bible. <laughs> it was great. Talks about God and Jesus. And I love God and Jesus. And I have no idea what I read. We need to meditate on it. James 1 puts it this way. He says, look intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty. 
Stoop down, have a closer look. Joshua 1, 8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. That's how they would read audibly. But you shall meditate on it day and night that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Did you catch that? He says, meditate on it so that you will be careful to do it. Implied is, if you don't meditate on it, it's probably not going to result in you doing it. What's it mean to meditate? It's to to think about it over and over. To to dwell on it like a cow chewing its cud, bringing it up again, or a coffee that's percolating through and and really drawing out all of the, the flavor. Considering it, thinking about it when we don't have to think about something else. Thinking through and being mindful of how the truth of God's word intersects with the realities of our life. You know, it's really hard to do that if you don't know it some way. If I ask you to to meditate on Lincoln's Gettysburg Address for the next 30 seconds, how many of you could do that? Well, some of you, if you know it, or know part of it, four score and seven years ago, you could meditate on that. Yeah, you got, you got to know it if you're going to be thinking about it other times because you don't always have your Bible open and with you. And so one helpful thing to meditate is a, a, a fifth reality there, to memorize the word. Again, some of that can happen as you study a text that's shorter. You will be surprised if you are just thinking about it a lot, how much of it resides in your brain and you can keep thinking about it. Some of it may need to be intentionally choosing to memorize a text of scripture. Some of you would say, well, I'm, I'm too old to memorize. My kids do that. I haven't done that in years. Uh, but I bet if I told you next time we come to foundations, I'll give you a thousand bucks for every verse you memorize. I bet you can memorize <laughs> You know, we, we just have to value it and, and be committed to it. You might choose to memorize some specific verses that help you in areas that you know you need to grow in your thinking or in your conduct. You may just memorize some scriptures to help you think more clearly about God or about his word. There's a number of resources. Be happy to talk to you about those things. But those need to be regular patterns to discipline ourselves for godliness. That doesn't mean every season of life they look the same. We've talked about that. If you're a, a mom with, with three or four young kids, I assure you Bible study will look different than uh, a, uh, somebody whose kids are all out of the house and they're a grandma, but they have lots of free time with nobody around, not lots of free time, but lots of uninterrupted time where there's not little people at their, at their home dragging them into other things all the time. Study may look like five minutes at a time, chunks, as opposed to 45 minutes at a time, chunks. It it may look different, but being committed to say, I'm going to give myself to this. It may look like listening to a sermon while you're changing a diaper as opposed to doing other other things, but being committed to say, these are important. I want to grow in my knowledge of God. A second spiritual exercise is that of talking to God, of of prayer. Jesus expected we would pray just like he expected we would read the Bible. He said, when you pray, pray in certain ways in Matthew 6 and elsewhere. Paul said, devote yourself to prayer. We, we don't have a lot of time to flesh this out. There's um, much that we could say, but how does talking to God, how does praying make us more like him? You know, if, if you look at a lot of the Psalms are written as prayers to God. 
And oftentimes they start with the psalmist pouring out their heart to God about the realities that they are facing and in that process working then to be talking to God in ways that align more with his perspective and his character. It's okay to be honest with God as you pray about what you're struggling with, uh, but to do so in a way that humbles yourself and places your will under his. Jesus says that's how we're to pray. We're to pray for your will to be done. And as you do that in, in the areas of life that you are maybe struggling in, it will change you. You know, if you're struggling to be godly in an area of your life or with a particular person and you begin to pray for that person or about that area, it will bear fruit in your life. Because godliness is about a relationship with God. And the way we cultivate any relationship is by listening to that person and talking to that person. And, and so it is as we seek to grow with the Lord. Just briefly, I, I want to remind you, lastly, and again, there's other important disciplines we could talk about, but tonight we'll focus on those. The, the last thing I want us to remind ourselves of is the process for developing godliness. You know, the means of grace that we've talked about Regular Bible intake or hearing from God, regular communion with him in prayer back to him, that will have a dramatic effect on us over time. It will shape how you think and how you live and what you believe about God. But there are also times when there are specific areas that we see sin in our life that we need to change. Sometimes that's a result of those means of grace. We're confronted with something that is wrong in our thinking or wrong in our conduct. And, and the scriptures also give us a process for how to grow in those things. We see it in Ephesians 4, uh, 22 to 24. Colossians 3 gives a framework of this as well. I would summarize it for you this way. They, they tell us or remind us to put off sin or to put to death sin, to stop doing what we were doing. If it's lying, to stop lying. Ephesians 4 gives that example and instead speak truth. So we, we put off sin, and then it speaks of renewing our thinking because sin flows out of how we think and what we desire. It's not enough just to say, I don't, I don't ever want to get angry again, so I'm not going to get angry. Well, that's a start. I don't want to get angry again and lose my temper or speak loudly and harshly to others, but then I have to change my thinking, change my heart Maybe I'm thinking that I deserve to be respected by these kids because I do so much for them. I go to work every day and they should respect me. When they don't, I get mad at them and I need to change my thinking to, hey, God's the one who provides for us and it's a blessing for me to get to serve him and uh, God has been gracious to me and patient with me so I can be gracious and patient to my kids even when they aren't all that they ought to be. We change our thinking to be in line with God's word and then we put on righteousness. We start acting in a way that is consistent with God's character and we speak kindly and patiently. Why do I include that here? Well, that takes effort. That doesn't just happen. You can want to change in an area, you can hope you change in an area, and you can go for weeks or months or years and see very little change in that area without intentional effort to say, I want to stop and change my thinking and grow and put on what is right. 
is that takes time. It takes time to think about why do I keep doing this? What's wrong with my heart and my mindset in this area? How do I need to think? It may take time to go talk to somebody else and say, hey, help me to think about this and help me to think of what verses I need to be meditating on and memorizing so that in this one area of my life, I can grow to be more godly. You see, those means of grace are the consistent practice that lead to change in a variety of areas over time. This process of change is how you attack specific sins and specific issues in your life that you see, I need to grow in this area. If you're struggling in a particular area, you don't just say, well, eventually in my plan to read through the Bible, I'll probably come across a verse that will help me immensely in this area, and it'll be great. No, you say, I'm gonna keep reading the Bible, but I need to find something about this and meditate on it and grow in this way. You guys, pursue godliness. As Paul exhorted Timothy, discipline yourself, exercise, train to be more like Christ. Make it a priority. Make it something that when you look at your time and your life, you say, this is not negotiable. I've got to be committed to this. And there are certain things that means corporately, and we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks, but personally, it means I need to be regularly hearing from God through his word, reading his word, listening to it, studying it, meditating on it, memorizing I need to be regularly setting aside time to talk to the Lord. And as I see sin in my life, I need to be intentionally putting that off and changing my thinking. The priority for each of us of personal godliness Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you have made yourself known to us in your word. Thank you that we can know your character. And thank you that you work in us who are in Christ to conform us increasingly to that character. And and Lord, we know that's a work that you do and it's a work that you will complete. And yet we also recognize that you have given us various means channels through which you work. And Lord, I pray that we would be committed to making use of those channels so that you are able to to work in our lives to increasingly conform us. Lord, help us to desire that. Help nothing to be more important to us than knowing you and being like you. And might we grow to that end as we are faithful to pursue that. Help that to be more important to us than all the other pursuits that scream for our attention. Lord, we thank you for uh, your word that challenges us and spurs us on. Might we be committed to this for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.